Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. One of the most difficult political questions of all is trying to understand money, what it is, what it means, where it gets its extraordinary power. But here's another question. What does money mean when it's issued by Facebook? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. We've got some people here who are going to help us, help me, try and understand this. This is hard. I think we all find it hard because... There's so much going on here. Helen Thompson's here, who understands about money. I don't understand about money. <laughs> Great. Uh, Ella McPherson is here, who's uh, co-director of the Centre for Governance and Human Rights, which, among other things, has done a lot of studying of blockchain technology, which is what lies behind this. Are you happy with that? Are you? Uh, we haven't done a lot of studying of blockchain technology, no. John Norton <laughs> does not write for the Observer newspaper. John writes for the Observer newspaper. And you have definitely written a lot about Facebook and Facebook's currency, including last week, unless something's changed. Yes, and the other thing is I have no money. <laughs> so here we are, your crack team, to tackle this. So the way we're going to do this is we're going to start, and I should warn you before we start, by the way, that there's building work going on. We live in Cambridge, Boomtown, there's always a building going up somewhere. There you just heard something dropping in the background, maybe. We're going to start by just discussing what Facebook says it's doing. It's put out some statements in very Facebook talk about this and about how it's going to transform the world. Then we'll try and work out what we think they're really doing or what might the motivation be, what might the business model be. And then we'll get on to some of these more complicated questions, which is how does this thing, this currency, which is called Libra, compare to other cryptocurrencies, other forms of money, to money itself? Is this really money? And then who knows where we'll go from there. John, so in your mind, what what is the pitch? How has Facebook told us what they're doing? I think one way of understanding this is to remember that if Facebook were a country, it would have a seat in the United Nations, and it has more more subjects rather than citizens than any other country on earth. 2.3 billion. 2.4 now. Yeah. And I think it's helpful to look at this by imagining Facebook thinking of itself as a state. And essentially what it's saying as a state is, wouldn't it be a good thing if there were a global currency? And if the white paper that they issued in order to announce all of this says, simply, I'm reading from it now, Libra's mission is to enable a simple global currency and financial infrastructure that empowers billions of people. This document outlines our plans for a new decentralized blockchain, a low volatility cryptocurrency and a smart contract platform that together aim to create a new opportunity for responsible financial services innovation, period. So normally governments issue white papers, or states do at any rate, and here is a large company saying, you know what, it would be good for the world to have a global currency, and since the rest of the world is too incompetent to organise it, we'll do it. So just to unpick some of the things that are going on in that, so part of the pitch is that this will be genuinely global because we, Facebook... We're not quite global yet, but we're as close as anything on this planet. Part of the pitch is the classic cryptocurrency pitch, low volatility. And then underlying it, I think, is the assumption that its selling point will be convenience. That actually it's it's going to be not just low volatility, but very low friction. Is that right? So I want to add in that I think part of their selling point, and this is really visible in the beginning of the white paper, but also in this very snazzy video that you can find on their on the Libra website is that this global currency can bring it, the unbanked into banking a and b make it a lot easier for people who send remittances abroad to their family in other countries to do that a lot cheaper a lot faster so that's part of the convenience frictionless thing yeah and it's a big part of the pitch i think and i have a lot of things to say about that but i can wait until later that's for when we want to talk about what we really think they're doing but yeah. that's helen what is it when you saw it or you heard the announcement, what were they, what do you think well, they I think were? That, one thing I think that they are think that they're doing anyway is trying to do something that is different than existing cryptocurrencies. Because if you take Bitcoin, for instance, it actually is very volatile. Its value is very volatile. And they're trying to say that if we have this 
currency that we have these other partners in the consortium or whatever they're calling it and we tie our currency Libra to a basket of currencies so the dollar the euro the yen sterling uh, etc it will avoid those problems that bitcoin has so it has a kind of like let's take the decentralized idea that comes with a cryptocurrency but it's not a cryptocurrency in the way in which we've understood what cryptocurrencies are so far because those are not linked to existing currencies and just one more thing of part of what they're selling in their own terms we've got to distinguish libra from calibra so libra is the currency calibra is the wallet that facebook are going to offer to allow people to hold this currency libra facebook is just one among many in this consortium or whatever it is and we'll talk a bit more about that in a second as they would say the thing about the wallet is yeah we own the wallet but anyone can build a wallet i mean we're just in a competitive virtual wallet marketplace and if ours is better well lucky old us but we know with facebook actually when they build it network effects mean you got to have one right so that part of it they will control yes the trouble is that the term wallet is misleading it suggests something in which you can hold your money that's not the way it works in cryptocurrencies. A, a wallet holds the cryptographic keys which establish your ownership of things that are in the blockchain. So you can't use the money without the wallet? But you have to have a wallet in order to in order to operate. Facebook's wallet will be available instantaneously to 2.4 billion people. And you think, what are the chances of somebody coming up with a wallet that does that? For example, it's possible for somebody to make a new kind of social network. You can make a new kind of photo sharing stuff and the rest of it. It's when Google said, look, if someone comes up with a better search engine, fine, put us out of business. Good luck. Well, it'll be the same thing. I think you've got to be a bit careful on the instantaneous because I would have thought there's considerable capacity for this to go wrong. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Did you say that there's some possibility this might go wrong? There's a very considerable capacity for this to go wrong. So, I mean... You're a master of understatement. This is a huge risk for Facebook's concern because at the moment you know the way at least as I understand you know the way that Facebook works it kind of the software makes mistakes and who's really going to notice but you make mistakes with people's spending capacity they are going to notice so someone (laughs) might build a better wallet yeah I'm not pretending to understand anything to do with software even less than I understand about money but it, it just seems that this is a different kind of risk in terms of what they do in technological terms than Facebook has ever taken before And then there's the question of Facebook's relationship with the other partners that are backing the currency. So how's that meant to work? So there's an association, the Libra Association, which they aim to have 100 partners. And these partners, the ones that are for profit, have to pay in $10 million. And there are also nonprofit members. But right now, there's only about 23 or 24 members. You would recognize some of the names. So, for example, there's big financial companies like MasterCard. There's tech companies like Uber, sort of ones in the middle like PayPal. And there's also, you know, these the, a few nonprofits like Kiva and Mercy Corps. I think what we have to remember, though, is right now and presumably when it grows to full size, the membership of this association, which is a nonprofit association, is dominated by for-profit institutions that do have a profit mentality. And the other thing we have to remember is that um, right now, as set out in the white paper, there's a certain way this is going to work. However, the association with the agreement of two-thirds of the membership is allowed to change any of that. So this is just the beginning. I think we have a lot of changes coming as this thing unfolds. And two-thirds is more likely to be on the profit side than the non-profit side. Could be, just saying. When Facebook makes its pitch, it never mentions profit. It's always mentions the public service that it's offering. And there are genuine potential, huge potential benefits for users from this, including not just the convenience, but actually particularly for people in parts of the world, it's really hard to use banking services to just bypass that. But there must be a profit motive in here. And Facebook have not said what the business model is in terms of money making. And people are speculating about what it might be. Now, there's one notorious way in which cryptocurrency might make its money, which is offering a service to people who can't use conventional money because they're crooks. But if that's Facebook's business model, they're not telling us. But there are other ways they could make money out of this, right? Well, to be charitable, the first thing is there is a serious problem of inequity across the world in some of this area. For example, your society, which has a large diaspora, say, in the West, they're earning good money, they want to send it back home where it's really useful and important. But when they do that, they suffer from really 
grotesque kind of rent seeking by the organizations, the financial organizations that transfer money from a diaspora back to the countries where it's it's headed. I was I just say I was really struck by this. I was thinking about Libra. So watching the Cricket World Cup, you watch England play India and the ads are for money transfer services for Indians working in this country wanting to transfer money back to the subcontinent. And I just thought Libra could just come in and <laughs> clean up here because this just looks I mean these ads you can see what's going on. But that would be, I think, a general good to reduce yeah. the cost. So when I say clean up, they could just offer a, a service. Yes, and the point about doing it electronically using something like the kind of blockchain they envisage is that you can do it with much lower transaction costs. In that sense, the idea is attractive. It's a bit like Facebook's original pitch, which was, we're going to connect everybody in the world. Isn't that a good thing? And that worked out really well, didn't it? Well, they're saying, well, actually, we're going to give all those people in the world who don't have access to the things that we have access to, uh, we're going to give it to them. It's like PayPal for everybody. And you can see that that's quite an attractive proposition. And it's a challenge to the existing uh, infrastructure of financial power. Because the other thought is that the way they're going to make money out of this is the way they always make money, which is just accumulating more and more data more information about people, their, their transactions. And because Facebook has this extraordinary monopoly on a whole range of human behaviours and monetizing information about it, this will just add to that capacity. Again, they've gone out of their way to say that this information will not be used. They'll be connected to other Facebook services. They'll be very careful not to plug it into their advertising models. And yet, and yet. Do we let's believe come, them? Let's come back to that promise later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that there is also that though money, if it were successful, to be made out of lending through it. Because once you've got basically people who have got essentially deposits in conventional money terms in Libra, then you can start lending it to other people who want that money and charge interest for it. In that sense, it's very like PayPal, because PayPal is very convenient to use for those of us who have access to it. But after a while, when you use PayPal, you find you start getting offered credit. And it'll be the same. Helen, you're more saying that they can take the reserves that are being used to back this currency and lend that, right? No, I don't think, well, I don't know. Are they more like a bank? I don't know about that because I think they've got a bit of a, I think they would struggle with that because I understand it. So if someone then basically takes their money out of Libra and wants conventional currency back again, then the Libra has to come out of circulation effectively So because they want every unit of Libra to be backed by actual financial assets. So I don't think that necessarily lends itself to easy lending model. I think it would be more the actual deposits that essentially, if you're building up you know, your account in Libra, say people are using it sufficiently that they've actually got a reasonable amount of money in there, that it would be the equivalent of having a bank deposit that then will be lent to other people. It's not like a bank where they could have relatively small reserves and then use the rest to... At the moment, I think that that aspect of it is kind of a bit like a currency board, and that aspect of it, I don't think, is well suited to lending. One question I had is if with Calibra, Facebook itself could be lending, so not backed by the Libra, but Facebook itself with its own money could be making loans, and that could be a way for Facebook to make money. Is that a possibility? That, that as it were, the wallet could have a click here if you would like to borrow a bit more. Yeah, and then you go off to Facebook's loan service, not to Libra. And they offer these amazingly competitive if you low do that, interest rates. I'm pretty sure that there's no way in the world that you could escape being subject to someone's regulatory authority. But the thing about the wallets is that I cannot imagine a situation in which regulators will not want to implement on each wallet the kinds of requirements they have for conventional financial operations. For example, the, the idea that you know your customer or you know your client that if you want to operate a wallet legitimately in a particular jurisdiction, then you'll have to satisfy the money laundering requirements of that jurisdiction. We don't know because it's very short on detail at the moment, but my hunch is that the wallet is going to be the point of focus for control, at least of the regulatory system, which is why wallets are really important, even though they don't hold anything except cryptographic keys. And there is that basic tension there, which is the the appeal not just of this, but of other cryptocurrencies, is that it will bypass the clogging up of the money system by excessive regulation and so on. And yet when we think about if it were really to take off, because they haven't yet, if it was really to take off as the means people use to transact across the board and across the world, there would be more regulation than ever, wouldn't there? <laughs> they can't have it both ways, can they? Or can they? 
That's a really big question because this is a very bold proposal. It it's unprecedented and it's put together by an organisation with very substantial resources. I mean, when you look at the work that's already been done by the Libra crowd on the blockchain and other things, it's quite impressive. It doesn't fit into any regulatory capacity really at the moment. So the only way of, of addressing it would be for, as it were, the rest of the world to get its act together and have a view about it. But we, we know that that's not likely to happen. That's so not so the this, rest of the world. There's a strange way in which this thing could slip through. But the US House of Representatives is already literally in the last 24 hours basically sent, or members of it anyway sent a letter basically telling Facebook to desist so I don't think that the the sites of either political authority or regulatory authority and central banks are simply going to set by and say okay this can happen but I do think there is a difference in this respect with because Facebook are talking the language at least of wanting to cooperate with the regulators saying look we're not doing this for a year because we have time to sort all this out and that is a very different pitch than the Bitcoin, which has got a very strong libertarian agenda, political agenda around it, and which the whole point is to completely bypass states. This is talking the language of cooperation with states, or at least with central banks and regulators. What that means in practice, of course, is, a, is another matter. And it should be said, though, that central banks themselves are interested in digital currencies. It's not like they've got no interest in thinking about these kind of things. And Ella, how does it compare with microcredit? Because you know, that's another public good, in a sense. And there are some comparisons, I think, between the, the pitches of these two things. Just tell us a bit about how you see that. Yeah, when I started thinking about how this might, you know, the speculation around the different business models around this. And in the white paper, it does talk about how the interest from the reserves are going to be paid back in dividends to these original association members. So that's sort of one way of funding the system. But surely this is just the starting point. And so if there were to be a loan product layered on top, that's when it starts looking a bit like microcredit. And the reason is this. So the way that microcredit works is that it's um, a loan that can go to people who traditionally were kind of unbanked or in parts of the world with such small projects that they no collateral, they couldn't get a loan. Microcredit allows them to essentially use their social capital as collateral. So they can say, you know, I, I don't have a house to put against this loan. However, I promise my village will pay back if I can't pay back. And the way that it is designed to work is that the threat of social exclusion, if you make all of your village really angry with you because you default, is enough to keep people in line. I've always been creeped out by that because I think that your social capital is actually, should always be separate from your economic capital because it is actually a safety net, right? So to have one institution that can have leverage both over your social capital and economic capital is wrong. And when you look at what Facebook is doing, if it starts doing personal loans, basically it has leverage over your economic capital, but also your social capital, because we don't know in the future how these two kind of sites are going to interplay. Like, what if you suddenly have something on your feed that says this person has not paid back their loan, like shame them into it. I mean, that that's a bit extreme, but I, it's the same kind of situation where actually I think these two things should be maintained quite separately for reasons of sort of safety, particularly the most vulnerable, whose main source of wealth is their social capital. So let's come back to that question that, John, you said we should defer, which is, are you reassured? I'm guessing you're not. By what they've said about the separation, the lines of separation between the different parts of the business. I mean, we know how Facebook makes money. It's called surveillance capitalism. Now they say they want a money, a form of money, their own money. Is this money going to be immune from the practices of surveillance capitalism? I think not. But that doesn't mean that you, we won't get these assurances at the beginning. And Facebook has form. But all of these corporations have form in that sense. For example, when Facebook bought WhatsApp, one of the guarantees was that data accumulated by WhatsApp would not be available to Facebook. Well, guess what? That didn't hold. The Chinese wall between WhatsApp and Facebook didn't hold. The Chinese wall between Instagram and Facebook didn't hold. These things don't work because there's a corporation which can afford to renege on the commitment if it suits it. And so we have another commitment now, which is that, sure, we'll have all people, the users of Facebook wallet, we will have access to, to their financial information. Okay, but, but on the other hand, perish the thought that we would link that with what we know about them on Facebook. And we're expected to believe this. Not only that, but it seems to me that there's surveillance capitalism already built into the Calibra wallet. I read somewhere that, that you know, Facebook would then have access to information about who you transact with. 
And saying that that's harmless is a bit like saying metadata is harmless. And we know all this from going through all of that sort of Snoopers Charter um, kerfuffle <laughs> recently, is that metadata is really valuable. Metadata tells you a lot. So they'll already be collecting that. So the metadata, to be clear, the metadata is the who, not the what. So the metadata yeah. is, we don't know what you said, but we know you talked to X and Y. And in this case, it's we don't know what money changed hands, but we know something changed yeah. hands between you and you. So you have a financial relationship. Yeah. We don't know what it is, but we know it exists. I think that this is, though, the massive political impediment to the whole thing, because Facebook simply does not have sufficient trust or credibility to make these kind of promises. And that is why it's already got the kind of political reaction that it has in the in the US. It would be one thing, as you say, John, for a company that didn't have Facebook's form about making promises that it doesn't keep to be doing this. It's quite another when you're talking about the kind of project that this is for Facebook to be saying these things. I think the reaction is really telling because it's, it's making me think of the kind of social media revolutions or Twitter revolutions of the Arab Spring, etc., where in a sense we were, like you were saying, John, kind of already having these promises from these social media companies, which is that their technology was going to bring around democracy. And actually the press coverage at that time and the governmental reaction was very, very positive. And in fact, there were, you know, sort of steps taken to support the social media companies in that kind of work. And then, of course, we've seen since then exactly how much of a kind of veneer of sort of false promises and, and solutionism that was and all the problems with these social media companies. And so this time around, we get the same kind of grand promises, but the immediate reaction in the public sphere is one of skepticism, disbelief, anger, distrust. So I think we're in a very different political terrain than we were at the beginning of this decade with these social media revolutions. Or, or put it another way, which is surveillance capitalism as we have it at the moment. Essentially what happens is that people's behaviour is monitored in order to enable predictions about what they might be willing to buy. Right? That's one bit of it. But in this kind of capitalism with, with a wallet, you actually know how much money they have and therefore, among other things, you then know what they might be prepared to pay. And can you imagine the temptation then to link those two together? Yes, and layered on top of that is somewhere deep in the white paper a um, commitment to developing a technology for a kind of globally recognized identity system. So you connect that to these financial transactions and you know that you're not just dealing with a kind of avatar of someone, but actually that someone because you have their identity. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. One way this could work, and thinking of Helen's point that we're wiser now, so if we don't stop it before it gets off the ground, it could very quickly become indispensable to many people. I mean, one of the ways that Facebook operates is they make the promises so that they can build the network. And when the network is sufficiently large and embedded in people's lives, then it's much, much, much harder for regulatory and political authorities to push back. So no question, this could be stopped now. There would be the means to make it impossible for Facebook to get this off the ground. But given it will have enormous benefits for many, many people, and it will be incredibly convenient, one can imagine it becoming quite quickly ubiquitous in many parts of the world. If we don't stop it now, if it doesn't get stopped now, actually it will be very, very hard to stop it at the point where the promises are being broken. So it's almost like we have to stop it before the promises have been broken, because if we wait to test whether the promises will be broken, it will be too late. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And, and the argument will then have an analogy with the climate change thing, which is Western countries wish to deprive us of the economic development that they have benefited from um, simply because it's inconvenient or it's dangerous for them or, or for all of us, perhaps. And there's a symmetry there and that kind of... We want to stop poor people in, in other countries having the kinds of easy access to digital money that we have. Through PayPal and other through things. PayPal and other things. Is simply because we are concerned about damage to our interests. So where might the resistance come from? So it might come from the United States Congress. There's real anxiety about this in China. And there is another model here. And again, when you read about what Facebook thinks it's doing and what 
sort of was the impetus for Facebook. No question, one part of it is WeChat, the the ubiquitous Chinese transaction service. One hears stories all the time now, people who go to China and they come back and they say, I tried to pay for something in cash at the top of a mountain in the middle of nowhere, and they wouldn't take cash. They would only take my phone and the, the WeChat service. And the way that that has really taken over almost all forms of financial transaction in China. But then presumably Libra is a threat to WeChat, or potentially WeChat is a threat to Libra. Are these rival systems? Or else they're just one's an inspiration for the other. I mean, if we know that Facebook has been thinking about cryptocurrency for quite a long time. My hunch is that Facebook executives go to China as well, and they have noticed the fact that the social media companies have basically created a kind of money that just works. And, but it's, uh, not uh, a, it's not a cryptocurrency, though, is it? I mean, no, WeChat, no. WeChat is just a way to transact in conventional currency incredibly conveniently to the point that it actually now you can't transact but with the, the cash. It's like Apple Pay, right? Pretty yeah. much like Apple Pay. But but the the point is that in China, that's you don't need cryptocurrency. You you don't need a blockchain because you're in charge of it. Well, even Facebook must have realised that that wouldn't work in the West. It's not in charge of the dollar. It couldn't have a currency that it was totally in charge of. It it couldn't do what WeChat does. So it had to do something else. Well, it does something else by creating the Libra Association. In other words, it kind of distances itself from it. It, it. it has this thing that we're only one bit of this one hundred strong group and, and so on and so forth it's detoxifying the lack of trust and the wechat model just to be clear it works because of the very tight relationship between the social media companies in china and the chinese state the pitch of this one is as with all cryptocurrencies it will work because it will not be subject to those kinds of state interference which over time actually make money such a problematic yeah, thing. i think it's better to think of it as a digital currency maybe than as a cryptocurrency you can't quite make the comparison with when facebook started because facebook when it started and creating this network was doing something that didn't exist Currencies do exist, and digital currencies are being thought about by other players other than Facebook, including not least central banks who know a lot more about currencies and money than Facebook and its trust consortium, whatever, does. And the central banks have got their own interest, probably, in providing a competitor digital currency to this. So Facebook are not going to be left to their own devices about this in the way in which they were when they created their social network. And how much difference does it make that the thing that Facebook has, which is where John started and no one else has, is 2.4 billion people in their network. So anyone who tries to stop this has got to confront the fact that the advantage that Facebook starts from, okay, it's competing in a landscape where there are genuine rivals, it's not building this out of nothing, but there are no rivals on its scale. And I think, you know, one of the real selling points here, I mean, I mean, thinking of consumers, like, would I use this in WhatsApp, you know, to send money to someone? One of the things that... Would, these, would you? Well, this is, this, is what, yeah, this is what I'm getting at, is that, you know, one of the promises is around efficiency. It's so much easier, probably, to just hit a button, send it over Libra, you know, to my friend, than it is to, you know, leave WhatsApp, go to PayPal, find her ID, blah, blah, blah. I think this is, you know, in the grand tradition of these tech projects, which are promising us efficiency. And efficiency is so tempting. It's so persuasive and seductive. It makes our ever complicating lives easier that we tend to to overlook the things we lose when we kind of worship at the altar of efficiency. So we may all say, yeah, but I don't want Facebook to have my transactional data, but you know, it's harmless in this case and it's so fast, so I'm going to do it. And I think that is one of the questions around this thing of the 2.4 billion customers is that they're going to all probably be making that choice because everyone knows about surveillance capitalism now. Probably the efficiency thing will still be highly persuasive. And with efficiency comes dependency. I mean, the thought that actually this is how you transact. This all assumes that the efficiency is possible. That's true. (laughs) You don't believe it. I say I don't pretend to understand blockchain or anything like that, but it's a huge ask to make this kind of thing work. That's why the Chinese system works so well, because they don't need a blockchain. You need a blockchain where there's a trust issue. And the trouble with blockchains is they're intrinsically inefficient. So at the delivery level, the blockchain is a necessary inefficiency. But it nevertheless is probably the case that at the consumer end, as Ella was saying, this could be a click to do something that previously took 20 clicks. And what we know from, from this technology for 30 years is that convenience appears to trump everything. How might it go wrong then? Again, there's been quite a lot of speculation about the ways in which this won't work. And some of it does cut across 
this question about is it really a cryptocurrency or is it something else so for some people the reason it won't work is that actually because it's tied to real currencies that relationship will break down one way or the other I mean something could go wrong with the real currencies which would undermine the appeal of Libra or something could go wrong with Libra and that would cause real problems for the currency so that relationship is there which the whole point of Bitcoin or whatever is that okay it's super volatile when being exchanged for real currencies on a market but it is not you know if the dollar fails that's a big problem for Libra it's not a big problem for Bitcoin in theory at least I mean I'm sure in practice it's a problem for everyone if the dollar fails I'm looking at Helen and she's not looking happy that I'm looking at Helen. Well, it depends what you mean by like the dollar failing. I mean, that's why they want a basket of currencies because they don't want it tied. Yeah. But say the dollar ceases to be the world's global reserve currency and there's a real massive breakdown in the relationship between American debt and Chinese credit. So Libra is not going to be immune from that. I'm not saying Bitcoin will be immune from either, but Bitcoin's pitch is it operates in some separate magical universe where this extremely inefficient mining means it's untouchable by all of the, you know, fiddling around of politicians and bankers and everyone else. Was this can't have that pitch? It's it's the opposite pitch, which is it's gonna it's gonna get trust from the fact that it's tied to yes. But just imagine for a moment that this thing really does take off and, and becomes a big deal. What happens then is that. Uh, there's a lot of Libra around, which means there's a huge basket of currencies and financial instruments held by the Libra Association. It could be the biggest operator in the global bond market, for example. Without that, that's they can't because you need states to be willing to issue debt in Libra in order for that to be the case. No, but, that, but for example, the association could keep some of its reserves in US government bonds. It doesn't just have to hold currencies. It can hold other financial instruments as well. Supposing it does, supposing it gets really big, and then supposing one day something happens and there's a panic about Libra and people come back and say, I want my money back, as it were. Here's my, here are my Libra. Now can I please have the dollars back? And that happens on a global scale and it really gets out of control. There's a run on the reserve, as it were. Then what happens? Who, who bails out that? Well, I don't know. I think they're trying to get around that in the way that they're setting up by basically saying is, is that there will only be Libra that is backed by actual financial assets. But... but I agree that what happens then when you've got things being done with those financial assets is a, is a, is a whole other question. But I think it's quite hard to think about what that might be but, but right for, now. For, but for example, if you just think of it in, in terms of the kind of financial institutions we know at the moment, you have an institution which has a lot of solid assets, but some of them are illiquid. For example, they're hard to get rid of quickly. And we've seen that with investment trusts and other things. So, so supposing you have this event where there's some panic and then everybody wants to exchange a Libra for a quote real currency and the the holder of the, of the basket has to suddenly f- kind of <laughs> convert their assets into the cash that needs to go back to Libra holders and it's not easy to do immediately or quickly or whatever then what happens Th- this is a predicated on this assumption that this thing will work and be successful and therefore be on a global scale so do we get to the point actually where Facebook controls something which is to use a phrase too big to fail and in those circumstances who would be responsible for bailing it out and is there another scenario here i'm just this is all we need adam to use i think yeah. some china offloads american government bonds and the libra association steps in to buy them because it's it's as powerful it's as big a player as as the biggest states in the world potentially on this you know on this where it does become ubiquitous it becomes this kind of default could it just start accumulating the power that well, we associate with states to decide these things? I think that that assumes that this could get to that point without there being a whole set of other developments prior to that, not least central banks saying you can't do these things. Because there are certain things that once any financial corporation of any kind start doing, that they have to fall under some legal regulation. And that will put limits on the kinds of things that that Facebook can do with this, unless they work out cooperative relationships with the regulators. And I would say the central banks as well. And this is where I do think they're going to run into the issue of the fact that the central banks have got their own interest in digital currencies. They've been doing their own work on it. And I can't see that they're just going to leave Facebook to be the dominant player in this area. But I'm sure that's right. But my puzzle simply is, Actually, how are the central banks going to get their act together as this thing rolls? 
I mean, is that the, is it the Swiss central bank that actually is going to be the the regulator in this context? Because the Libra Association is based. I, I I see the point in principle that central banks can do this and that regulators can do that. The question is, can they do it in a way that copes with the global scope of this, and can they do that in time? I've got no idea what the answer to that is, but I think that it is important to see that. The premise of your question then is it can get to global scope before any of these regulatory questions come into play, and that's where I'm that's where I'm skeptical. It goes back to that chicken and egg thing. Like you can stop it if you stop it before it starts, quite easily, and we probably it probably will get lots of barriers in the way. But there is a point with all of these things where if the network effects really take off, it becomes much much. I mean, then we're in uncharted territory. We don't actually know, and we discovered that with the original Facebook. If you go back ten years, you'd think. Well, states and regulators and other people will, you know, before this thing gets out of hand, like they will really get a grip on it. They didn't. And they haven't. And now they can't. But the, the thing here, I think, is different is, is that Facebook to begin with was a social network. That is not things that states engage with. States profoundly engage with money. And that, you know, like one way of thinking about money is in relation to states and that it makes... States it, make money, money makes yeah, states. And that money's purpose in some sense becomes that it is a means by which you can pay your taxes. That is one historical way of thinking about what money is. As I say, there's all kinds of theories of money that I don't think we should go down that <laughs> rabbit hole. And there's obviously arguments against that as well. But when you are talking about a player that is not a state engaging in something that is fundamental to what states do, that is a really different question than what Facebook started off as. So can I ask Ella this, which is one unspoken part of the pitch could therefore potentially be in many parts of the world, it's not just that people find it hard to make transactions, but states find it really hard to collect taxes. Is, couldn't this be part of the pitch to states that it's going to make it say to the Indian state that you know, there's a huge problem in India to get people to pay tax? Isn't this? So I guess I'm that's an interesting thought. I'm going to sidestep that question for a second because I was just thinking about what Helen was talking about, the difference between a state making money and a private corporation making money. And I think the question there is one about accountability to the citizens, right? And so in a democracy, you know, your state makes monetary policy and does it somewhat independently because it's an area of expertise, but at the same time is beholden to the citizenry in terms of that decision making. And what really troubles me here is if this takes off like we're talking, you know, speculating about there is no accountability system whatsoever in place because it's a set of private corporations in an association. So it's pure regulation rather than accountability in that sense. I mean, the kind of political accountability yeah. you talk about. We are totally reliant on people who aren't particularly accountable to us, i.e. the regulators, to regulate this. Yeah, It's not like what we still call democracy. And it itself doesn't have incentives to regulate itself like a state does, because it doesn't have that relationship with the people like a state does. When the, when the news first broke about this plan, about Libra and the rest of it, my first thought was, this is the first case in human history where we have an organization that is now thinking of itself as a state. So th this thing represents, I think, the first instance of a corporation behaving as if it were a state with global power. That's why in your that you may be absolutely right that states will see this in the same way. This is a challenge to us that we've never had from a corporation before. Well, the East India Company, I think, was a bit more like a state than Facebook is like a state. Because it did the other thing that states do. So I said, states have money, states make money, money makes states, states make war, war makes states. Facebook has not yet. I mean, that's the next stage. It's kind of globally beneficent police force or whatever, but we're not there yet. Coercion is the key thing in the state's relationship to money, its ability to force people to pay their taxes. That's not present here, but it was present with the East India Company. I think the other thing we've got to bear in mind is, is that the whole question of currencies and the use of currencies, the international use of currencies, has already quite a sharp geopolitical question because we already have a situation in which the dollar is the dominant currency in the world and that's pretty problematic from the Chinese and the Russian point of view and some other countries and well, including you have some people in the European Union who are, who are saying things that are quite anti-dollar in saying we have a problem, the world's reserve currency being the dollar is too problematic and you have an American position that obviously 
for the most part, because it does come with complications, having the world's reserve currency wants to protect the United States' position. So I don't think that, if you like, at the state level, that this question of alternative digital currencies can be quite thought about outside the question of the future of the dollar as the as the international reserve currency before we even get into the fact there's effectively then another dollar system going around the euro dollar system which is the one that the banks use between themselves there's another chicken and egg version of this there was a critique of this project there have been lots out there journalists and others so one in the new york times where the article ended by essentially saying any company that's big enough to issue its own currency is too big and so you know, for other reasons, it needs to be broken up. But you could say that any company that's genuinely big enough to issue its own currency is already too big to be easily broken up. There's that sweet spot between if they can genuinely do this, the thing that they say they can do, we're already in trouble in that respect. If they can't do it, well, they can't do it. And we're almost trying to, you know, we're going round that circle, which is we will discover whether Facebook can do this or not by whether they can do it. I know it sounds obvious, but that will be the test. Because they're going to try. They are seriously going to try, right? This isn't just a stunt, is it? It's not a stunt. It's not a Nick Clegg-style stunt. I did have a question about if it was a stunt, which which is that Facebook's in a lot of hot water, huge amount of hot water around, you know, Russian manipulation, around the live streaming of horrible events, around Cambridge Analytica and surveillance capitalism. And so one of my questions was, hmm, this is interesting. This is a gigantic, huge, splashy project that is now in all the media which is something completely different from their kind of core business model and is a complete distraction. So it's, it's convenient in that other sense of the word convenient. Yeah, that's exactly what I think. I don't think that means they're not going to do it. I just think that they are benefiting from the fact that we're all kind of, you know, trying to get our heads around this and not actually remembering all that terrible stuff they're doing. And we know that Facebook is thinking about a revamp. You know, Mark Zuckerberg came out and said, we're going to move from a public square model to a private living room model. And maybe they're using this distraction as a way to figure that out. So it could be they do this for two years, then they don't do it in the end because it was too hard. But in those two years, they bought themselves priceless time. There's a non-conspiratorial way of thinking about that. What's in this for Facebook? Well, first of all, you have an association of 100 people and 100 organizations and they each pay 10, 10 million. Okay, that's just, just like that. Okay, the first bit. Second bit of it is 75% of Facebook's users are in North America and Europe. The rest are, are in Asia and in what we might call the rest of the world. The amount of money in terms of average revenue per user that Facebook can squeeze out of the 75% is definitely reducing. So in order to have growth, it has to find some way of extracting more revenue from those in Asia and in the rest of the world. Well, funnily enough, providing banking services to these nice people might not be such a bad idea. That's one bit of it. What else is there? Well, remember that the transactions are almost frictionless. The key word is almost. They're not completely frictionless. There's a commission for each one. It's more efficient and so on, but nevertheless, there is. And you, you start thinking about a minute commission on 100 billion transactions, and you suddenly have a new revenue stream, and you get that from the wallet. Then there's the, the problem of how do you address the threat from the Chinese companies? Well, this may be a benefit too. And finally, if you're in Facebook's shoes, you can think of this as a way to really entrench our power and make us untouchable. Yeah, I wanted to layer a few more things onto that. One is that by keeping you on platform through the wallet to make payments, you get more eyeball time, which means more people to sell to advertisers, number one. Number two, there's this kind of strange question. I don't know if you've heard of Belfast coin, but it is a coin developed in Belfast as a way to get people to spend local. It's a cryptocurrency, I think. But also you get paid by the city for being a good citizen. So recycling or shopping local, et cetera, you get financial rewards. So my question has been, is there going to be a point when suddenly that starts happening in the Facebook platform, which is actually a monetization of labor that we're already doing? So in some sense, asking you to do certain things be online for certain amounts of time and if you get paid for it that's actually a more fair system than right now when we're doing that labor for free then i had this you know question which is sort of you know is it possible that this new system will actually help facebook this is me thinking optimistically move away from the surveillance capitalism model which is so problematic because actually it's it's making money through financial transactions that can subsidize the social network so in that sense, it could buy itself a couple of years, actually. So it's not just a stunt. 
it genuinely does want to shift. It might, yeah, to keep its customers. I <laughs> haven't said anything about the name. I just so they've called it Libra because it's the scales. Then also Libra is the original word for the pound, and so the you know LSD pound shillings and pence. The L which becomes our pound sign is Libra. But to me, the word Libra is Don DeLillo's novel Libra, his great novel about Lee Harvey Oswald, and it's called Libra because Libra was Lee Harvey Oswald's star sign. So for me, they should have just called it conspiracy and be done with it. <laughs> Is that a good note on which to end, John? That's a great <laughs> note. That's a great note. If you listen to this podcast regularly, you'll know that Facebook is the itch that we keep scratching with John, and I'm sure we will come back to it. But there's something else that we want to talk about this week which matters more for us, and that is to pay tribute to our dear friend and colleague, Aaron Rapport, who died last week at the age of 38. Aaron was an integral part of this podcast. He was part of the reason we kept going in the beginning, we started out talking about British politics and then when Donald Trump began making hay with the American presidential election, we wanted to talk about America and we particularly wanted to talk with Aaron about America. We wanted him to enlighten us and also, to be honest, to make us laugh, which he did and he continued to do for the years thereafter. All the time that Aaron appeared on this podcast, he was battling cancer and he was facing a pretty bleak prognosis, but I don't think anyone who didn't know that already would have guessed listening to him because he brought more wit, more energy and more enthusiasm to what we do than anyone. He talked about a lot of things with us. He talked about Trump and about America, about the world. He talked about war and peace. He talked about international relations, which was his field. He talked about nuclear weapons, which was one of his specialisms. And he talked to us about history too. And we put together a small montage of moments, Aaron, talking about some of these subjects, starting with the night in 2016 when Donald Trump became president of the United States and finishing with a moment from a podcast we recorded about our favourite inaugural addresses in which Aaron read a bit of his favourite, which was Thomas Jefferson's inaugural from 1801. Aaron was a rare and remarkable person. He was much loved and he will be deeply missed. It is currently 3.10 in the morning and I'm watching BBC uh, election coverage. Clinton, who was supposed to win Virginia so comfortably that it didn't really show up as a swing state in any polling site that I saw, uh, is barely ahead there by about 0.5% of the vote. So even if she wins Virginia, that bodes very badly. It is 5 in the morning, and I am about to go to bed, but it looks like uh, the polling industry got everything entirely wrong because at the moment I see absolutely no path forward for Hillary Clinton to be the next president of the United States. It will be Donald Trump. So pack your bags and batten down the hatches. It's going to be a interesting four years ahead. There's an expression sometimes used called gambling for resurrection, right? If you are very desperate, you may pick a choice that you know probably nine times out of 10 is going to leave you worse off, but that one time it might make you really much better off, right? And perhaps the safe choice that perhaps makes you incrementally better off when you're living with a kind of, pardon my French, shitty status quo, that might not be so appealing. Whereas the possibility of a big payout, even if it also might lead to kind of a dystopian future, is more appealing. More or less says, I have to tell you, I am terrified. I really don't think I know what to do here. And you kind of think, you right, you don't know what to do here. And in a way, you could say, in their defense, they did keep their campaign promises. Right. <laughs> Which was? They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> okay. I keep getting drawn back to John Oliver's take on Trump and the Trump-Russia scandal, which is that it's stupid Watergate as John Oliver calls it, it's Watergate by people who have neither the knowledge nor inclination to gain the knowledge necessary to successfully pull off a caper of this magnitude. And so the tweet that caught my eye the most was the one where Trump 
virtually admits to obstructing justice, which he'd already kind of done before in the past when he had announced on live television, you know, Russia, if you're listening, please do hack into the DNC emails and release more dirt. You know, that wasn't so much an obstruction of justice. That was, you know, asking a foreign adversary to uh, intervene in U.S. sovereignty. And that was so 2016. That's well. so 2016. Nobody's hiding anything, and in a way, it's a very bold kind of strategy, although I don't know if it's a strategy, right? It's, a lot of it seems to be reflex and reaction. But by putting it all out there and demonstrating that, in fact, the Republican Party isn't going to do very much, it can in some ways have a dampening effect on any expectations in Washington or amongst the population in the United States that anything will happen because you're covering up about as badly as you could cover up, right? It's more of the, what's the opposite of a cover-up? Everything's a big reveal and it's in your face, right? And it's, we're getting away with this. What are you going to do about it? And so far the answer is, you know, not much because we still need you to sign off on tax reform and entitlement reform and all this other stuff. So it's a way of, possibly it's a way of demonstrating power. Also, there is a summit between Soviet leaders and American leaders, a little-known summit that takes place shortly thereafter, in which one of the events is they kind of sit down and watch a movie together, and the movie is about Chinese attitudes towards nuclear weapons, where even though now the Soviets and the Americans think of them as unconventional, right, different, they're not just big artillery pieces, the movie seems to imply, right, that this is exactly, right, how the Chinese think about them, right? They're just weapons like any other weapons. They just have a bigger bang for your buck. And so this scares the bejesus out of McNamara and other kind of hard-headed people at this meeting, and you get agreement on anti-nuclear proliferation pretty shortly thereafter. How big a shift then to a new way of thinking about these weapons is the Reagan era? Here's the way I view nuclear weapons. They keep the world safer every single year until they will eventually kill us all. (laughs) And the way I view this is basically... Probably the most famous section of the inaugural is, he says, every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. We have called by different names brethren of the same principle. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. If there be any among us who would wish to dissolve this union or to change its Republican form, let them stand undisturbed as monuments of the safety with which error of opinion may be tolerated where reason is left free to combat it. We've been talking politics and we've been remembering what a privilege it was to talk politics with Aaron. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.